Anesthesia Deconstructed is supported by National University's CRNA program. National University's CRNA program is one of the nation's top programs for CRNAs and dedicated to making you a successful CRNA. The program doesn't just prepare you for entry-level practice. National focuses on making you a full-service provider and gives you insight into what is actually happening in the industry. With connections to faculty with backgrounds in advanced clinical practice, academics, research, and anesthesia services management. Learn more at nu.edu. Welcome to Anesthesia Deconstructed, science, politics, realities. Listen in as medical professionals join industry expert Mike McKinnon to discuss the latest science and medical advancements, the effects of our political climate, and the realities of today's changing healthcare environment. Let's get started with your host, Mike McKinnon. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed Science, Politics, and Realities Podcast. My name is Michael McKinnon. I'm going to be your host. I've been a CRNA for about 10 years, and I will be bringing you through the process of all these stories and interviews over the coming episodes. On this episode, we're going to be talking to Dr. Terry Wicks, who is the incoming NBCRNA president about the Continuing Professional Certification Program, otherwise known as the CPC, which is highly controversial. Today's guest is going to be Dr. Terry Wicks, who is the incoming president of the MBCRNA, which of course is the recertification body that recertifies CRNAs. Dr. Wicks began his career 20 years ago, where he graduated in 1986 from the U.S. Army Anesthesia Program with a master's degree, and he also went on to receive his doctorate just this last year and maintains an active clinical practice in North Carolina. In addition to that, Dr. Wicks was the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists uh, president in 2006-2007. In his professional life, he's currently a professor in the nurse anesthesia program at the University of North Carolina, Greensboro, and he is a founding member of the rock band Volatile Agents, which is his true passion, he tells me. So, sit down, enjoy your ride in your vehicle. Listen to our podcast. This is going to be an interesting episode, important for CRNAs. Get the information. Let's get it on. Welcome, Dr. Harry Wicks, to the show, and congratulations on your doctorate, brother. Yeah, thank you very much. It was uh, hard work, but it's obviously been paying off. I, I got a job teaching at UNCG, and so I'm where I want to be in my career right now. Excellent. That's all you can hope for. So, I mean, as you know, the rollout of the NBCRNA CPC program has been controversial since its beginning in Boston when it was originally announced. There's a, a large group of members that are very concerned about what's happening, what's going to happen. But I think in order to understand it best, we kind of have to set the stage with the history of the MBCRNA, uh, you know, how it works, how it interacts and functions with the COA, the AANA, and members. Because I think people are pretty unclear as to the difference between the MBCRNA, the AANA, and the COA. Can you enlighten us to that a little bit? Absolutely. And, you know, I understand, uh, you know, where there's some confusion because even 10 years ago when I was on the board of directors of the ANA, so I, I lack the kind of clarity that I think it's important for uh, ANA members to have when they're looking at these relatively 
cooperative yet administratively, autonomously, these agencies that are separate uh, financially and, and through their through leadership. We have to turn the clock back. We have to look all the way back to 1975 uh, when the ANA members at a business meeting approved the establishment of the councils to oversee accreditation uh, of their programs and the certification process for nurse anesthetists, both those entering the profession and uh, in a couple of years later for those who would be recertified. And so now that process is as most uh, seasoned CRNAs know, is well over 50 years old and hadn't really uh, changed much since its outset. And then about 10 or 12 years ago, in the process of renegotiating the uh, relationships between the ANA and the Council on Certification and Recertification, uh, it became obvious that the organizations had grown apart, at least in, in the sense that their missions were clearly separate. The ANA obviously being the political advocacy organization and the Council on Certification of Nurse and really focusing its attention on certifying new entrants to the profession and the Council on Recertification for maintaining their credential over time. And a decision was made by those two councils to form a corporation, which they renamed the NBCRNA, or the National Board for Certification and Recertification of Nurse Anesthetists. And that really was sort of that laser-bright line that separated those two functions of certification and recertification from the broader political advocacy uh, role of the ANA. Now, what they did very shortly after that, starting, I think, in about 2008, is they started to look at their at the recertification process and the changes that were taking place in the recertification community that not just nursing, but organized medicine were wrestling with, trying to find a way to update that with the current recertification standards. And after doing a, a professional practice analysis where AANA members determined those things that were most important for CRNAs to know in order to practice safe irrespective of their practice setting, the CPC was uh, conceived and it's composed of several parts. The first part, of course, is familiar to most CRNAs, and that is continuing education credit. But the added component was that there was going to be a requirement for those continuing education credits to be assessed in order to be recognized, at least for the, the classification that we call Class A. The CPC also contains an opportunity for CRNAs to be recognized for doing uh, service to the healthcare industry and to their organizations. And, and educating uh, ancillary and allied health professionals and get credit for those educational efforts as well as serving on committees and doing community work, even even taking part in mission projects. And those are the Class B credits. And of course, they don't have to be prior approved and they are very simple in terms of what they require in terms of documentation. The other two pieces that really do seem to cause a lot of confusion are the modules and of course the CPC assessment. The modules originally were going to be required every four years and they cover the areas of technology, pharmacology, airway management, and physiology and pathophysiology. And those four domains overlap with those areas where CRNAs identified being most important for safe practice. The intent of the modules uh, is to keep nurse anesthetists up to date with the emerging technology and information in the anesthesia community and that derives their content from anesthesia research that's been published. The vendors of the modules have the ability 
ability to provide whatever baseline and background information to support the new information that they choose to. But the key is, is that whenever a module is approved or recognized by the NBCRNA, there are specific objectives that that vendor has to address in their uh, module or provide information to support their decision not to cover that. Uh, The beauty of those modules is they satisfy Class A credit. And I think compared to what it costs to get other Class A CE traveling to meetings and paying entry fees and staying in hotels and eating in restaurants, Class A credits on the modules are are relatively inexpensive. And I think maybe a few hundred dollars from the ANA to get all four packages that provide you somewhere about 17 or 19 Class A credits, which is really a bargain. One of my uh, heroes called it the uh, elephant in the room, of course, is the CPC assessment. And of course, I think a lot of the anxiety surrounding that CPC assessment is when it was originally rolled out, it was framed as a pass-fail test. And of course, me, like everyone else that is concerned, would be you know, aware of the threat that if you fail to be successful on the examination as it was originally conceived, one could possibly uh, have in jeopardy their ability to practice as a CRNA and support their family. So with the exam and the uh, the modules that are being done by some third-party groups, I think some of the questions are, you know, are these are these third party companies uh, contributing revenue to the MBCRNA, or are they doing it on their own? What is the process for that third party company in order to be able to be allowed or certified to to provide these modules? That's a great question. Uh, originally, we set specific objectives for information content that the module had to satisfy in order to be recognized by the NBCRNA. Uh, the NBCRNA does charge a fee for reviewing the module to ensure that the content is contemporary and that it satisfies those objectives. But at that point, the NBCRNA basically is taking a hands-off. Approving organizations like the ANA will look at the module and determine how many continuing education credits it will uh, award for that module. The the vendor themselves set the price for the module. And so the NBCRNA gets no money from the marketing of the module. There are state associations that have submitted modules for recognition. The ANA, of course, obviously does. And there are private uh, organizations, healthcare provider organizations, which have created modules for their employees. So the revenue stream from the modules goes back to the vendor and the NBCR never sees that. And of course, they don't have any uh, role in setting the price for those. And so what is that initial fee for a vendor if they choose to go down that route? That's a really great question, Mike. You know, the initial cost to review a module for recognition is $2,500 per module. And then there's a $500 annual fee per module to uh, review that to assure a currency of the module. We are getting it at a point in time when a lot of those original modules are going to be resubmitted for review for updates. And right now, they are still trying to determine at the office what the most appropriate fee for that would be. And I imagine it'll be closely uh, resemble what we've charged in the past. And of course, what we're really interested in is covering our human resources costs and and not really making a profit on that. Is that a lifetime fee? Basically, you create a module, this is the cost, and then from there on in, it continues? Or is there ultimately new fees to uh, maintain that? 
I think that uh, the NBCRNA has required that the vendors update those modules on a, a periodic basis. I think it's, they have to be modernized every four years, and then they have to be resubmitted. I don't know if there's a discounted rate for resubmission for a, a renovated module or if it's the same price, but it's probably similar because that whole price point is set based on the number of man hours and the human resources required on the part of the NBCRNA to review the module. Right. So basically, you've covered what the CPC is and how it works. I guess one of the questions that I hear a lot from members is, why did we need this change? What was wrong with our original program that it wasn't sufficient enough to continue? Because as you know, CRNAs have a long history and track record of incredible safety. And so if if that was the case, why do we need this upgrade? Yeah. Well, that's a great question, Mike. And, and I'll be honest with you, you are absolutely you hit the nail on the head. There are very few healthcare professionals that have a track record of safety that compares to, to nurse anesthetists. But what we do know is that in every field of human endeavor, uh, those people who are probably in most need of updating their practice or uh, renewing their skills are probably least able to objectively judge their own skills. And that's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it, it, it applies to lots of different domains, not just health care, but the use of humor, writing, sports, uh, ability to tackle math problems. So the interesting thing is, is the least skilled are the most likely to overestimate their abilities, uh, whereas the most skilled people tend to underestimate their abilities. But that's really an aside. You know, the driver was really uh, those organizations which credential the NBCRNA to certify nurse anesthetists, and that includes the uh, National Council on Certifying Agencies and the Accrediting Board for especially nursing accreditation. And those boards require a couple of things uh, that are important. They require that our recertification model should include a multimodal approach that encourages individuals to continue activities essential to maintenance of knowledge and, and continuing practice of their, their specialty. Also, it stipulates that recertification should be time limited and should last for no more than five years. And then the final piece of that, which caused a lot of consternation, is that the question was, well, you know, I've been practicing for 25 or 30 years. Why shouldn't I be grandfathered? And the black and white print is basically says that grandfathering may have been used before to satisfy initial certification, but they insist that that no longer be the case. So our crediting bodies required for us to remain to be a certifying agency that we make those kind of changes. Right. So w- when it comes to that change, I think a lot of people look at it and say, well, look, if this change doesn't predict clinical competence, you know, you, you're not in any way particularly testing a CRNA's ability to provide anesthesia safely, but simply asking questions or reviewing modules and then having a test. So how would you respond to those concerns that if it's not going to predict clinical competence, it's not doing anything extra? What is the reason then? That's what a lot of people I think are asking. Well, that's a really good question. Of course, you and I both know that clinical competence really encompasses a number of domains. It's not only knowledge, but it's also judgment and decision-making. And in addition to that, obviously, you got to dovetail into that, you know, psychomotor skills uh, and work ethic and, you know, ethical issues uh, towards practice. What the NBCRNA recognizes is that we can assess knowledge relatively easily. We know that. That's a time-proven scientific fact. And we can also dovetail into that a degree of evaluation of decision-making. But at that point, then, we're entering into a real gray area after that. So what the 
NBCRNA is engaged in is uh, several processes uh, which will change the NBCRNA and the CPCR, CPC over time. Uh, we have a committee right now that's investigating ways in which we can dovetail simulation into the CPC, and they are looking at uh, the whole spectrum of simulation from high-fidelity patient simulation to virtual reality, and there's some evidence that virtual reality is, can be beneficial in terms of evaluating uh, skills and decision-making. And we are also have a committee that's investigating the experiences of, of other certification bodies and new technologies for the delivery of longitudinal learning, which is very similar to the PEDS MOCA or the MOCA 2 that anesthesiology is engaged in. And there's some good evidence that's accumulating when people participate in longitudinal learning platforms that their knowledge actually does increase and that they perform better over time. So those are a couple of things that the uh, NBCRNA has got on the front burner. Uh, we're excited about them and we're really looking forward to seeing the results of those committees work probably delivered to our board within the next one to two years. And those things will influence the pathway that the NBCRNA takes in its recertification growth. Right. So this is an evolutionary process. And at some point in time down the line with the expansion of virtual reality and online simulation, there will be some direct clinical testing with the way people think of clinical competence isn't, of course, knowledge base. As you know, they think of it as, well, I do anesthesia every day and my patients wake up and do great and no one complains. So that's my clinical competence. At some point, there'll be a function of testing that down the road with possible virtual reality or simulation. Yeah, and it may be something that we offer as an option as a, to substitute part of the CPC, or it may be dovetailed into the CPC in total. It's, it's hard to tell at this this point in time. But I do want to emphasize, and I think sometimes gets lost, that even from the beginning, people like uh, Dr. Chuck Bacchiano, who was one of the uh, first presidents of the NBCRNA after the CPC was launched, and Steve Wooden, who was a, a past president of NBCRNA, and most recently, Dr. Bob Hawkins, all have said repeatedly that if the CPC looks the same in 10 years as it does today, then we will have failed. So we are continually looking at ways to improve the platform, to make it better, to make it more relevant, to reduce the burden that it imposes on practicing CRNAs, and to make it you know, uh, an, an avenue for improving practice. And one of the things that we've got on the, on the front burner right now is we've engaged with a researcher to look at long-term outcome changes that may be related to participation in the CPC uh, by looking at historical data and then data moving forward from 2016 when the CPC was launched. And so we're going to be, we're, over time, we're going to have an opportunity to look at those data and see if uh, involvement in the CPC does make a difference in patient outcomes, which is really our first and uh, primary focus. I think, I think that'll leave you some of the concerns people have uh, in that there's, you know, there's an environment right now where uh, medicine and other professions are looking at their recertification process and eliminating some of these components uh, in favor of other options or in some cases removal altogether. And I think that, you know, when people see that from our profession, they look at it and say, well, why, why do we have to do it if they're not doing it? And so, you know, when, when you discuss the evidence, well, okay, there's evidence there suggesting that this has the potential to increase knowledge over time. And I think it's great that you guys are going to do some research to show that over time. 
How do you respond to those people who say, well, if medicine's not doing it, our primary competitor, physician anesthesiologists, are, have moved to MOCA and have eliminated their simulation exams, all that kind of stuff. Why do we need to do it? What separates us? Well, I think one of the things that gets overlooked is that by changing the CPC from a pass-fail exam to changing it to basically an assessment with a performance standard, we are really giving nurse anesthetists who take the CPC an opportunity to get a snapshot of where their knowledge deficits may lie. And uh, I can tell you from personal experience, when I came to the university and started uh, doing didactic teaching, things had changed tremendously in the 25 years since I graduated from anesthesia school. And, and I've been giving continuing education lectures for my entire career. And, you know, I think some people would argue maybe that I'm the kind of person that keeps up. But I was stunned how much I had to learn myself in order to teach uh, entry-level CRNAs. So, you know, I think it's easy to lose track uh, when you're practicing every day and how, how much things do change. And I think, you know, one obvious uh, area with that is the movement towards uh, limited or zero opioid administration during general anesthesia, early recovery from anesthesia and surgery. That's new on the horizon. Uh, I think there's a lot of practitioners that are still finding out about, you know, drugs like Presidex and the role of non-steroidals in reducing pain experiences postoperatively. The explosive interest in the use of ketamine for depression uh, and for chronic pain and PTSD. So, you know, what we're hoping to do is give people a snapshot of, hey, here's a place where I could probably improve my practice and let them then get targeted in education to address those uh, shortcomings in their knowledge. So that's one value that would be missing if we just eliminated the CPC assessment altogether. Absolutely. One of the concerns with the exam, going back to the exam itself, is although I think it was an amazing move for the MBCRNA to eliminate this whole pass-fail, you know, because there was so many concerns about people's jobs and what would happen to their certification in their state. But one of the things that people are still concerned about is the whole idea that, well, what if I pa- what if I fail my first attempt around at this exam? So although it's not pass-fail, there's going to be a number of things that I maybe didn't do well on, and maybe it's a lot of them. If that happens... Is this information discoverable by their employees uh, or employers? Can they can they look on the website and see, oh, you know, Mike failed four modules and he has to go back and do all this? Is that something that they could find out? And I only mention that because it could be a real concern for people, you know, if they're working somewhere that that could be found out and then possibly them in some way be impacted by it. Yeah, and I think I think that's a legitimate concern, not only from, for example, uh, privileging at an organizational level, which obviously would be a concern, or even if that information were disclosed at trial uh, in an evaluation of someone's standard of care. And so the posture of the NBCRNA uh, historically has been not to release those results. Certainly would they not be available uh, to the public on the NBCRNA website, and I think it would probably take a court-ordered subpoena to get those results. That has not been tested in the past. I know for the NCE exam, we don't even release those results immediately to the takers of the test themselves. We do release them to the program directors after a certain period of time. And if the program director wants to share those with the students, they have that opportunity. Uh, But we take very seriously our uh, obligation to protect that kind of information. And as I said, to date, that has never been tested. But uh, our posture right now is not to in any way, shape, or form disclose that kind of private information. 
Yeah, that makes sense. It certainly is something that I, I've been hearing a lot of people, of course, really happy that it's no longer pass-fail, but very concerned about how that could impact them later. So as it, as the whole uh, CPC uh, relates to the MBCRNA and the increased cost for CRNAs over time uh, for the MBCRNA CPC exam and the modules, a lot of people look at it and have the criticism that, oh, you know, the MBCRNA is doing this just to make more money, to put more money in the coffers. Uh, it's a new way to expand how a revenue stream with online simulation, all these things are possibly coming, and, of course, the exam. And how would the MBCRNA respond to that, the, that criticism? You know, I think it's, it's a reasonable thing for people to ask that question because, you know, this is, you know, the money that they have to invest to sustain their working career. And I think it's a reasonable thing for people to take a hard look at that and ask the question. Both I uh, and John Preston, who is one of our chief credentialing officers, take a close look at this last year. And based on our estimations of what it cost in the past to maintain certification, including the actual cost that's given to the NBCRNA, the $55 or so a year, uh, the cost of continuing education and comparing all of those things across the board, we believe that participation in the CPC is going to be very similar to what it cost previously to maintain your uh, certification. Particularly, you know, there was a hard question asked about what we were going to charge for the CPC assessment itself. And I, I read a comment on social media made by someone that we could not possibly bring this online for less than $1,000 a charge per person. But um, our finance uh, department took a hard look at the cost of creating, maintaining, and updating the CPC assessment and what it cost the NBCRNA to evaluate these other programs that we've talked about, simulation, longitude, and learning. And we felt like we could bring that to, to the, the market for $295, cover our cost, and have uh, enough extra revenue to sustain these other programs that we're investigating. And so we're really happy that we got it down there because for 10 years, we've been saying, hey, we think we can bring this test forward for $300. And so actually, we got underneath that a little bit. And the other thing is, is as we've talked about in the past, Mike, is that, you know, our financial reserves are pretty healthy. And people look at that and are critical of it. But probably like most people whose investment accounts have done very well over the past 10 years because of the growth in the stock market and equities, a good bit of our financial reserves are also a direct result of our wise investment policy and uh, the good fiduciary responsibility of our board of directors. We uh, use those resources to fund projects uh, like we've just talked about, the, the simulation investigation and longitudinal assessment, and also to provide programs that generally don't generate revenue streams for us, like the uh, non-surgical pain management certification, which is something that has cost the NBCRNA uh, at a loss throughout its lifetime. And if we have the opportunity and the demand is there to provide other certifications, whether it be for regional anesthesia or obstetrics or whatever, pediatrics, whatever the market asks for, uh, you know, we will look at keeping the cost of those programs if they're created at an absolute minimum. And the way that we can do that is because we have healthy financial reserves. Dovetailing back to the history, there's some discussion I know about members. They seem to have some confusion about the ANA, the MBCRNA connectivity and how they're related. And I know originally the MBCRNA was just part of the ANA and was not autonomous. But something occurred at one point in time in the history of the ANA that resulted in the MBCRNA being required to be autonomous. What happened there? 
Well, there's a couple of things. I think that the uh, Department of Education and the national credentialing bodies recognize that there has to be a laser bright line between the folks that are doing accreditation of educational programs, those folks that are doing certification and recertification, and the folks that are uh, providing advocacy for the profession. So they have to be separate. In fact, the anesthesiologist a long time ago wanted to take over education of CRNAs, and that was one of the things that prompted the independent and autonomous creation of the Council on Accreditation to show that there was that laser bright line. And also, similar rationale was for providing the autonomy and independence of the NBCRNA, or as it was known at that time, the two separate councils. And that's been very important for the profession because that allows us to stand up and say, you know, no matter what our advocate might say in Washington or at state legislatures or at the boards of health or medicine or nursing, uh, our credential is defensible because it's independent, it uh, has a separate uh, board of directors that have as a primary mission protection of the public through creating uh, credentialing processes that promote lifelong learning. And uh, that is rock solid. And that not only protects our patients, but it, it protects the integrity and the uh, long-term viability of the profession as well. Yeah, I, re- I remember having those discussions with you in the past. Now, the one thing that uh, about the NBCRNA is it's, it's the only uh, recredentialing agency for CRNAs. And I think Generally, people feel competition is good, and there's a discussion among members that it, it kind of ebbs and wanes about, well, why don't we have another body, and if we did have another body, how would that look? What are your thoughts on the idea of an of a additional credentialing body to compete with the NBCRNA? Well, I think um, I think that's a, an interesting conversation to have because the, you know the reality is uh, our credentialing body, the NBCRNA, is a pretty complex organization in terms of its uh, research arm, the fact that it provides a, a certification examination for new graduates, and, and and all the things that we've talked about is with regards to the CPC. Now, as far as you know, my perspective, and I think you know the perspective of the NBCRNA is you know if somebody else wants to create another uh, certification organization or recertification organization, you know, they're at liberty to do that. Uh, this will be a costly undertaking, especially if you want to recreate, at least in principle, a lot of the services that the NBCRNA provides. So if someone has the, you know, has the resources and the, the motivation to do that, they're certainly at liberty. The one insight that I would offer, though, is that if a new recertification body were formed and it provided a certification process that was less stringent than what was provided by the NBCRNA. You know, I have questions about whether state legislatures and boards of nursing and privileging bodies at a, at a local level would recognize that. And of course, the, the other side of that coin is if a, a, renew, a new certification body came into being that was more stringent than the NBCRNA, you know, how many CRNAs would uh, would sign up for that? So, you know, as I said, just tie a ribbon around it. You know, the NBCRNA recognizes that, you know, anyone can do that if they want to spend the money and create the, the platform and the framework and, and get that thing recognized nationally through all the uh, accrediting bodies that, you know, have at it. And so when, when it comes to things like, uh, for instance, the CPC exam, the modules, if a new credentialing body came about, would they be able to do things differently? So in, what I'm saying is, is there could be the same level of standard, but maybe they didn't have an exam in the way that the MBCRNA currently envisions it, or they did the modules in a different way, or they had a separate sort of setup, but considered maybe equally stringent. Can they do that? Is that acceptable? Oh, sure. They can do that. I just They just have to get on the track and run through all the, all the barriers and, and, and get it created. 
And so, and the other side is, is I know that the NBCRNA and the ANA have a recognition agreement. And so how does that recognition agreement impact a new credentialing body? Let's say the AANP was approached and they said, sure, we'll take it over. How does that impact the relationship with the ANA and the NBCRNA? Well, I think the ANA and the NBCRNA have done a really uh, a lot of very productive work over the past seven or eight years to uh, create a collegial relationship that recognizes their separate missions towards the public and towards uh, the CRNA practice. We feel as a board that we're at a point now where we really have a good dialogue that goes on constantly with the ANA board of directors. Our uh, presidents talk regularly. Uh, we have liaisons between the two boards that attend their uh, individual board meetings. And and they have uh, frequent conference calls. If we have something that's on the front burner that we think that the ANA board would like to know about before it, you know, it goes public, uh, we make an effort to get that out to them. Uh, so if another credentialing body would come along, uh, you know, they would have to go through a similar process to develop a relationship with the ANA board of directors, and that would be a, a challenge for them. But you know, that could, that's a possibility. And specifically, that recognition agreement recognizes the MBCRNA as the only one by the ANA currently until until the 10-year renewal point, right? Is that correct? I believe that is correct, yeah. Uh, dovetailing onto the simulation, we talked about that a little bit already. Um, at, you know, I think everyone compares anesthesia to the airline industry. We talk about it all the time. There's lots of comparisons, even within our textbooks. And the airline industry has, of course, done a fantastic job of simulation training and recurrent simulation training all the time. And there is a group of CRNAs that say, well, you know, why have an exam? Let's just have a simulation exam, which really does test everything that's going on, at least the snapshots of the biggest things. What are the barriers to creating that sort of a simulation exam set up today? Well, probably the, the number one is price. It's an expensive uh, undertaking to uh, administer rigorous simulation. Even if we just looked at critical incident management in the operating room, that might be a, a one or a two-day process. And so you can imagine running uh, 54,000 CRNAs through that over the course of a couple of years. It would be pretty uh, daunting. The other piece of that is travel. And, and you know, for our folks that live out in the west of the Mississippi, uh, independent practicing CRNAs practicing at critical access hospitals, folks that that practice in, in, in areas of the country where a simulation center might be days drive away. There's a potential for lost income, uh, not only lost income, but the cost of having somebody come in and cover for them while they're gone. And the other thing is that there's the specter of what if you go to the sim center and you don't do well? What do we do with you then? Do we just say, well, you can't practice until you come back and do that again? So there are lots of financial and logistical and practice issues that really have to be resolved before you know we would engage in a, a system of systematic high uh, fidelity patient simulation as, as a, a criteria for, for recertification. So that technology is young and things are changing constantly. So there may be an opportunity to do virtual reality at some point uh, remotely uh, that could help satisfy that. But to the analogy with the airline industry, there is no doubt uh, whatsoever that high fidelity simulation in the airline industry has contributed dramatically to traveler safety. And uh, I would be pretty reluctant to get in the get in an airplane where the where the pilot or co-pilot hadn't undergone that kind of rigorous critical event training. So that's something we've got to look at in the long run. You know, there are now uh, pretty convincing uh, published evidence to support using uh, cognitive aid in the operating room to help manage crises. So uh, that's another avenue that we want to take a look at on down the road if see if that has a place in credentialing or with simulation. Uh, so it's a wide open landscape. So, you know, we've got some work to do to see if there's a place for that. Oh, excellent answer. I, 
the the NBCRNA um, hasn't really said a whole lot about types of practice models or anything like that or how they feel about them. And as we know, CRNAs work in probably three main practice models, one in an anesthesia care team with physician anesthesiologists, uh, often in a medical direction model, one to four uh, style, or in a collaborative practice where everyone's in their own room or there may be just one physician for 20, 30 CRNAs. And then, of course, an independent practice style where they're working a full scope of practice and uh, managing the cases day to day and doing every portion of that pre-anesthetic to post-anesthetic process. One of the questions is, how has the MBCRNA supported that full scope of practice kind of, you know, the CRNAs who, who's are, who are all by themselves or with a CRNA group doing this entire range of things uh, in, in terms of recertification? What things have the, has the MBCRNA done or what plans may there be to expand that sort of offering to the, that, that group of people? Well, I think that probably the most prominent piece of evidence to show that support was the creation of the non-surgical pain management certification course. That's a, a pretty complex and a high-level uh, area of practice, but it's one where particularly CRNAs in the rural area absolutely needed their support. You know, the NBCRNA tries to provide good information to the Council on Accreditation and to the ANA where it's appropriate to help them in their advocacy efforts. The NBCRNA specifically kind of takes, a, you know, an arm's length distance from a lot of the political charge discussions that take place as far as you know, how CRNAs are able to practice or in what areas they're able to practice. Now, our main focus is making sure that uh, CRNAs keep their knowledge up to, up to date and that our, our certification process really uh, meets the highest standards of the contemporary recertification industry. You know, it, it's always going to be a challenge to remain apolitical from, for the NBCRNA, but, you know, always be that resource for the COA or for the AANA uh, to provide the information that we can to, to support the CRNA practice. Well, part of the reason I ask is because you know, the MBCRNA has this mission to promote patient safety. And, you know, as we are well aware, based on the evidence, all available evidence, the CRNAs are safe in any model. It doesn't matter what model you work in. And with this uh, continuous and constant, rapidly expanding full scope of CRNA practice across, across the country, both in autonomous style models and independent models and anesthesia care teams sort of on the wane. What actions has or does the MBCRNA plan to undertake to help support that model? Because obviously, you know, if there's more and more CRNAs in that kind of a model, there's an expansion of the needs of those CRNAs, both in recertification and certification and in education. And so with your certification portion, how would you do that best? Well, I think that we've been asked uh, by a couple of different uh, interested CRNAs to evaluate the possibility of providing uh, perhaps an obstetric certification uh, credential or regional anesthesia recognition. So we have to look at those things very carefully, recognizing that the possibility exists that by creating that sort of a uh, recognition that it's possible we could even box CRNAs out from those areas of practice. So that's something that we have to look at very, very carefully. But other than that, you know, we really have stayed pretty well clear of the of the political discord out there in the healthcare industry and really tried to sustain our focus right on the on certification recertification. So at this point there's nothing there's nothing particularly specific that the MBCRNA does to support that full scope of practice other than the recertification is broad. Right, it's really kind of outside of our wheelhouse. Okay, and then probably the the one of the most controversial things that's happened in our profession recently is the ANA's uh, acceptance of the of this new title, uh, nurse anesthesiologist, and so that's been controversial both in a political way, even internally uh, and outside externally. 
what is the MBCRNA's position on that and how or what would the MBCRNA be able to do to support that moving forward as it grows in popularity, assuming it does? So what we would have to do uh, is to really engage in a, uh, in a knowledge-based discussion what the NBCRNA uh, wants to do. We have not undertaken that formal discussion at a board level, and so the headline is that we haven't considered that. However, we're not ignorant of what's going on in, in the anesthesia community and you know, recognize that the ANA Board of Directors has uh, allowed CRNAs where it's permissible to use the descriptor uh, nurse anesthesiologist, and I know that some boards Boards of nursing have recognized that. Uh, so I think what we're waiting for before we really engage in a, a discussion about that uh, on a policy level or as a, a posture is to wait until we see uh, where the tide is taking us. Uh, I know that uh, there was a bylaws change proposal that was initially intended to be brought forward today in a business meeting that was initially going to ask for a change in the name of the organization, and there seemed to be a lot of uh, division about that, and so that was withdrawn. So we we are really taking a couple steps back. We're going to kind of watch where that goes. Uh, obviously, if that gains some momentum, we're going to have to look at what boards of nursing are deciding, what state legislators are deciding uh, in terms of recognition of that title. And then we'll kind of go from there. And so what what would that look like? Does it change the recertification exam title? Does it change the process by the, the certification? Is there now two certifications, CRNA anesthetist, CRNA anesthesiologist? You know, looking down the road at the future, if this got uh, very popular and you guys decided that as an MBCRNA you had to expand this offering or do this in recertification, what what does that look like? Are there two different titles? Is there one combined? Well, I think what we would have to do is go back to our accrediting bodies, the National Council on Certifying Agencies and the Accreditation Board for Nursing Specialty Accreditation and have a conversation with them and possibly even go as far up the line as the Institute for Credentialing Excellence and see what stipulations would have to be satisfied if we, you know, if we embarked on a change. My guess is, is that uh, at least initially, and this is just speculation, that there might be a period of time when, when both are recognized. But again, uh, that I'm guessing is a little ways down the line. And, and obviously, we would have to have an intense and, and a deep dive conversation at a board level about uh, the direction we wanted to go. Excellent. And so we basically come to the end of the interview, Terry. I appreciate you being here. It has been great a great conversation as usual. What last things would you leave our audience with about the MBCRNA, uh, the CPC, and anything that they should know? Sure. I think that's a great question, Mike, and thank you for asking that. Uh, every time I have an opportunity to engage with uh, CRNAs on social media, or face-to-face at meetings, or even in an individual institution where I happen to have a chance to visit with CRNAs, uh, I ask them to go to the NBCRNA website. There is just an enormous wealth of resources there. There's guidance. There's an avenue there to look at your progress towards recertification and get a graphic representation of what you need to do. Call the office. Uh, Our staff is available seven, well, not seven days a week, our office is available five days a week. They always answer the phone, and if they don't have an answer for you, they'll get one. Reach out to us. We are, we are at state meetings. We're at private CE vendors uh, meetings trying to make our presence and you know, ask us questions. Go to the website, get some additional information, and uh, we really hope that people recognize that we're working on their behalf uh, as well as on the behalf of the patients. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Wicks. I appreciate your time, and uh, have a great day. Okay, thank you, Dr. McKinnon. I appreciate it.
That's all for this episode of Anesthesia Deconstructed. For more information based on today's discussion, be sure to visit us at anesthesia-deconstructed.com. You'll also gain access to our blogs, editorials, and more resources to keep you updated on the science, politics, and realities of today's medical industry. That's anesthesia-deconstructed.com. 